This episode is brought to you by freedadcourse.com. You are always one conversation away from changing your life, and the power of hello is something that I subscribe to every single day, and I'm always saying hello to new people everywhere I go. Increasing your opportunity, increasing your connection, and getting access to the solutions to the problems that you are facing, whether you're on active duty or just beginning your veteran transition or even transitioning out for 20 years. On the other side of hello are the solutions that you're looking for. Again, head on over to freedadcourse.com. Get your five-episode audio course to create more connection, create more friendships, and get back to living the life that you're trying to design. So New Year's Eve of 2015, after I did that video, Bruce was walking, the gentleman went out of the, his office, and the guy looked at me like he was going to kill me, or he knew me. <laughs> it was the husband of that woman that messaged me on YouTube. And he sat there, we both cried, and Bruce had no idea that we knew each other. And we, he's like, I saw your video on YouTube, and you're the reason I'm here. And so... If it doesn't, if you don't think that what we do right here makes an impact, but that single-handedly was like, it was, it was just, it was unbelievable to to know that you make an impact. And he was a Marine. Mm-hmm. He got out. You changed the family out. tree forever and yes. made that tree keep growing. I mean, somebody has their father. Dory one, this is Fireteam Delta. Dad coming home. Welcome to the Military Veteran Dad Podcast, where it is our mission to bring every dad home. I am your host, Ben Colloy. I'm a United States Marine veteran, husband, and a father. We will bring authentic conversations to inspire action in your life so we can close the gap between the dad you are today and the dad you want to be tomorrow. This is the Military Veteran Dad Podcast. Welcome back to the Military Veteran Dad, episode 61. As we get started with this week's episode, we are going to take a moment to honor some military members that didn't come home today. Recently, on February 8th, two uh, soldiers lost their life in Afghanistan, and those names were withheld until the, the families had been notified. This past week, those families had been notified, and they released the names of two people, two soldiers, that didn't come home. I'd like to honor Sergeant First Class Javier Jaguar Gutierrez. He leaves behind a wife and four beautiful girls. I looked at the picture of his girls. They are all under 10, and they will not get the feel their father's presence in their life as they grow up. And I would just like to remind every dad out there who gets to grow up with their daughters in their life that that memory and that feeling is something worth fighting for. And those girls don't get to feel that anymore. And the second one was Sergeant First Class Antonio Ray Rodriguez, and he leaves behind a wife, and they did not get the chance to start a family yet. And that opportunity is gone. It was taken from them. And it is up to us, the military dads still here, to create a legacy worthy of those two soldiers' sacrifice. Something worthy that is empowering enough to say that we can create something that we got to come home and we created something that was worthy of the gift that they gave us. And two other Marines that I want to honor are someone that today's episode with Bobby Gray, he talks about two friends that he lost, and I'd like to memorialize them with this episode. And their names are Corporal Matthew A. Wyatt. He was 21 years old, and he died in 2004 in Ambar province of Iraq. And also Corporal Corporal Bumrock Lee was also 21 years old, and he died in Ambar province as well, and was served alongside Bobby Gray. 
and those two names are memorialized as tattoos on his arm. And those are two names that he carries with them that he takes his challenge to create a life worthy of those two Marines that didn't come home and all the Marines, airmen, soldiers that gave their life in Iraq and Afghanistan in these past years. It is up to all of us to honor them with that sacrifice and to create something worthy, create a life that lives up to that dedication, that sacrifice that they gave us. Because as I always say, there is a son and daughter out there that no longer gets to feel their father's love. And there's a father that no longer gets to feel their son and daughter's love. And it's up to us that still get to feel that, to make sure we honor it, to make sure we live it. But more importantly, make sure we are present. Because just being there isn't enough. You need to be able to be present. And if you're on your phone and your kids are asking you for your time, that's a sign that you need to be there. Because there's a dad out there that doesn't get to be there. And we need to show up in their lives. Today's guest, Bobby Gray, is going to hit you hard. It hit me hard recording it. He is a United States Marine veteran who is here to tell his story of getting another chance at life. He actually did take his life, and it was through his wife being able to save him from hanging himself and resuscitating him and giving him CPR, followed by, I believe, about 10 to 12 days in a coma of recovery that he is here today to share his story of coming back home to his marriage. He is not a father yet, but his story is so impactful that if you've lost anyone, if you've struggled with PTSD, if you've struggled with any of the demons that veterans face, this episode will rock you to the core. And hopefully the a le- bigger lesson that you take away from this episode is that sharing your story is the best gift you can give to the world, no matter how dark and scary that story may be. When you bring light to that story, power comes towards you. People will come towards you. And as you heard in the opening teaser of this trailer, his story changed a family tree forever. And imagine as we keep sharing stories in this podcast of how many family trees we're changing every time. And every time we change a family tree, we honor those soldiers, airmen, Marines, seamen that didn't get to come home, that don't get to hug their kids. And that is something that I take don't take lightly as I host this podcast and talk about it. And as I learn about soldiers and Marines that don't come home, that they the worst thing I do when I start Googling this information is I pray that they didn't have kids. And then when I find out they had kids, my heart just drops. It hits the floor and it takes a while for me to pick it back up. But picking it back up allows me to recommit to this mission recommit to everything that we are about in this podcast and gets me that much more excited. So with that, let's get started with Bobby Gray. Welcome to the podcast, Bobby. How you doing? Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. I found your story. I've had a lot of interviews come from randommilitary.com articles and you didn't even know you were on military.com for your story and how you were putting out there in the universe. And you're not coming to us as a dad, but you're coming to us as a Marine veteran and a husband to a story that I knew that other military dads needed to hear because the fact that you're not a father doesn't make your story any less impactful to help other military dads come home and realize what they have on the table right there in front of them. So go ahead and a little bit unpack about what your story is and what brought you to this point in your life today. Okay, so um, I joined the Marine Corps in 2003 
post 9-11 and about a year after I got out of high school. Oh, by the way, to interrupt, I was also going to tell you, we joined in the same month. Really? August 11th. I went to San Diego, though, so I was August 11th. I went to boot camp. I joined in August August 20th of 03, and then I waited till December to, to give myself some time to back out. <laughs> but, but I, so I went 10 days before Christmas, which was the worst. I should have waited till like January 1st because that was awful, being away the first 10 days of boot camp and it's over Christmas. So, um, so yeah, I joined the Marines really solely just for 9-11 really was the driving force and all that. Um, got out in December of 07 with a – went on two deployments that were – Iraq in 04 to March of 05. And then I went on a mule in 2006. So those are my two deployments. Um, like I said, got out in 07 because I wanted to live a normal civilian life um, to help my mother-in-law because my father-in-law passed away right at the time that I was actually talking to a career planner about re-enlisting. So things were greater. I felt that I accomplished what I wanted to in the Marines as far as serving the country and surviving war. And just like I said, I just, other things were pushing me to just do different things in life. Um, wasn't so much worried about anything in life that was going to affect me. Um, and like I said, quick summarize, um, didn't think anything was wrong with me for six years of being out of service, which I'd had incidents all the way up through my suicide attempt in 2013 that should have thrown up red flags and post suicide, which I survived solely because of my wife in that, on that day, I've been advocating to just to get this 22, 22 a day number down to hopefully zero, but just to share my testimony and the things I've been through and my wife and my family have been through to just advocate for veterans anywhere or anybody that deals with PTSD or depression or suicidal thoughts or anything like that. So that's where my life has changed to just making a difference going forward and not getting back in that dark place that my life was in pretty much for six years post military career. So, And you, how many times did you play to, Afghanistan or Iraq? Iraq just one time. In just September. one time, but you had like three incidences while you were there, right? We got when we first got to Iraq, our one of our convoys. It was like the second week we had guys get blown up on a on a convoy. Um, couple firefights here and there, some which was all right. No, nothing, nothing dealing with that. Then uh, we did lose some Marines to a VBID uh, that come through our fob and detonated in there, which killed two Marines and screwed up pretty much the rest of us. And that's where got a traumatic brain injury from the blast. But again, my injuries in that moment are non-existent compared to what we are dealing with as far as Marines that we are, we eventually lost. So did so yeah. you get sent home because of an injury or did you finish no, out your tour? No, finish it out till March. And we went over as artillery because I was all the way to 11. And we were pretty much just uh, really basically just thrown in the, I guess, the, the realm of infantry of being 0311. So our goal, our job over there was to predict the Jordanian Iraqi border. I was in Trabil, Iraq, which is on the far west coast right there on the Jordanian border. Pretty much custom, custom police, border patrol, anything like that, try to prevent smuggling and 
anything coming into the country. So it was it's kind of weird because by the time that I got out of MOS school, which was the end of June of 04, I got to my unit right after July 4th, 96. And the day I checked in, they're like, hey, yeah, we're going to Iraq like next month. Well, in, in September. And I was like, man, I don't, all I had was MCT. <laughs> and these boys have been training up for three or four months. So I was kind of kind of worried about that. But I was like, oh, we're going over as artillery. I've been doing this. I'll be all right. I had no idea what our job was going to be over there. So Iraq was uh, – it was, it was it was a life changer for sure. So, were you part of the uh, Fallujah to re- the effort to retake Fallujah, or was it before the big huge surge to retake Fallujah? Our unit was. We had some Marines that were more or less our, I would say our officers and stuff. But we did have guys that were attached to the the full on assault of retaking. Was that November of '04? So we were in country, but not directly in it. So. You were taking still the flack from it because I'm sure you were a target because of what the, the other Marines were doing in oh, Fallujah. Yeah. Especially like when that was all going on too, was like, especially being out there on the Jordanian border. I mean, they're smuggling in anything they could to really destroy what we were trying to do in that country. So yeah, it was, and we're over there doing election time, their first really democracy of having an election. So that was a, that was a weird weird week or two with the having to protect like voting polls to make sure nobody mm-hmm. was really that was when sick. i kept seeing those pictures of everybody with the black thumb yeah it was it was crazy that time was that was i would say if you're ever scared or just uneasy just just it was it was a weird eerie feeling knowing knowing what was going on at that point so I don't and, know why. And there's more movement than normal because there's, yeah. there's the there's the people moving it's more than just a daily commute or market noise yeah. it's um and we weren't over there. We weren't in country too long, so you don't really don't have the uh, the gist of your everyday life over there. So I was, it was all green yeah. to me, really. So, and even coming home, it wasn't like the, the military had figured out the coming home strategy that they have now. Yeah, or even that they've had in the last decade for coming home. Like now, they park you in Germany almost for a few days before you come home, just to get used to some type of civilian world before you actually get brought back to your universe. Yeah, we sat in well, – when we come out of country, we sat in Kuwait for three or four days, got on a plane. We, we had a layover in Germany at the airport for an hour maybe. Uh, and then I don't – I think we, I think Germany was the only place we had a layover until we got to Cherry Point, North Carolina. And then we get home that day, and then like two days later we check out for leave. So literally a week from the time you leave country to your home – for me, it was back in Pennsylvania at the time. And I've heard it said that that one part that they really suck at is they spend months, like almost six months preparing you, but spend five bringing you home. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it was insane. And then just expect everything to be home. And even if you think about back to like World War II and what they had to do, I mean, they had a long distance to come home. So, I mean, they had a almost a decompression stage. Yeah, they're sitting um, on a ship for two weeks. <laughs> sitting on a ship and just kind of reflecting um, decompressing, talking about it, probably reminiscing with their soldiers or the fellow uh, military members that they were with. It's just a completely different, um, it's almost the speed of the world almost makes it worse for coming home now because of how fast you can be back. Yeah. I interviewed a Navy SEAL and he said that he, he, um, he was asked to fly home one of his Navy SEAL uh, members that died on an airplane. So he literally found out in a day's notice he was flying directly to Dover and so wow. he had almost no, and then he left his members behind. He didn't go back. 
So then yeah. he had like, he had guilt. Like, I don't want to be here. I want to be back over with my team. But then he came home suddenly. So there's just a lot of things that they aren't, that they, they, they just set it up for a failure of all the, the things that you had to go through. And it yes. makes it harder. Absolutely. I want to go back to, I want to kind of work your timeline a little bit here and, and, yes. and help uh, military members. So the one thing that I've noticed when I interview, uh, especially Marines, uh, because the Marines probably have one of the most massive identities that gets assigned to you when you put on that uniform and you get pinned that Eagle Globe and Anchor at boot camp. Do you feel like you had an identity before assuming that uniform? Like, did you know who Bobby Gray was before? Not at all. I was a 19-year-old kid that had ambitions of having a NASCAR career, and that was it. I didn't see – that was – I didn't have any – you know, I didn't see anything further than the steering wheel, you know what I mean? Like, that was – that was my life at that point. So no, I really didn't didn't know where I was going. Honestly, when I when I enlisted, I didn't know where the Marine Corps would, would lead me beyond that. Even you know, four years that I initially signed up for. So no, I didn't didn't have a plan. It was just what's what's tomorrow. So, mm -hmm. and I think the hardest part for Marines is when we transition off, the the identity isn't lost. Like the saying, a former Marine is like for most Marines, it's the biggest insult you can say. You're always yeah. a Marine, once a Marine. And, but at the same time, you're wearing different clothes and you're treated differently and you're around a different group of people with different set of standards. And I think it's that Superman complex that we get with the identity. And when we Absolutely. kind of transition away from that identity and we take the Superman uniform off, that that's where we almost, especially if you don't know who you were going in. And a lot of members don't. That's why they join because they're, they're lost and this seems like a good place to park for a little bit to figure it out. And then when you transition out and you don't have a clear identity, that almost like artificially inflates your ego as a protection mechanism. So people don't figure out that you don't know who you are, that you're just this scared little boy inside that doesn't really know what to do now that he's out of the military. And it's like you're 100% right because getting out of the Marines was the beginning of that losing that self-worth. Because, I mean, you literally go, and I always see it regardless of what I've been through, being a Marine, not knocking any other branch, but being a Marine is like, it, it, that is the pinnacle of achievements in life, honestly. And I still believe that to this day. I mean, it's just you, being a kid. I mean, you just see the commercials and everything like that's yeah, a Marine. Like it's just the most coveted position you think you can hold. And like I said, when you achieve that and you succeed at being a good Marine and you get out and you try to do a, a normal civilian, there's nothing, almost nothing in the civilian side that can almost come close to, or what I felt could come close to, the highs and the self pride and the things in the Marines that you accomplish. It's, and it's, it's almost like the civilian world makes you start questioning who yes. you were and what you believe. Yes, absolutely. Especially right now in the world of like what's going on today in the world is absolutely making people second guess it. And that's where it does become a, an argument really. So, cause I'm just stuck in my ways, I guess, but it's, it's tough to, yeah, you never lose that that title. You take the uniform off, but you always had that ego wrapped around being, being in the Marines. So. And for um, my transition story out. So one of the worst things that I had to do was on my way out, I had to testify at a court martial that ended up putting someone in the brig. And it really just left my whole like career is kind of like the stain that I didn't want to deal with that emotion. I didn't want to feel it. I didn't want to do anything with it. And so when I got out, I actually just wanted to avoid the whole thing. I didn't want to be labeled as a veteran. I didn't do anything to draw attention to me. I just wasn't comfortable in my skin anymore. And it was probably almost 10 years later. And at the start of kind of figuring out before this podcast, my first idea was just to help 
veterans be a life coach and really facing that fear and turning around and trying to figure out how to make a business out of it. Yeah. That really was the very first. And that was in 2015 and I got out in 2007. So that entire time I really didn't enjoy being labeled as a Marine. It wasn't something I considered special and it was just something that I had a lot of memorabilia sitting around the house that I hadn't figured out what to do with yet. Yeah. And it's difficult when you're trying to refigure out what that title means to you throughout the rest of your life. And it comes with a lot of baggage, but then it also comes with a lot of power. Um, just, uh, last month I started carrying around. So I had a whole desk full of, uh, challenge coins that the Marine Corps generals and Sergeant majors gave me. And so I took these challenge coins because a, a coach that I have gave me this advice to carry this coin and he's a Marine as well. And he's like, whenever you doubt who you are, grip that coin and just remind yourself that you're a United States Marine and that no one can take that away. And that means something. And before when I, he gave me this advice, I did a meditation exercise where I held the coin in my pocket or my hand and I visualized every Marine that ever came before me as like this light in front of me coming towards my chest. And then once it hit my chest, I visualized the light flowing into my hand into the coin. And I can't tell you how many times I just gripped that coin in my pocket and I would feel better because it was like, um, if you think of like your emotion sometime as a river, there would be undercurrents that would just swoop me away. Especially I'm an emotional guy. So I feel a lot. So yeah. those currents would just rip me away and I would just get brushed away. And the next thing you know, I'm a mile down the river. And I don't even know where I am, but that coin was like my anchor. I could drive a stake in the ground like 10 feet and stand and get through whatever was flowing around me and then just keep on moving afterwards. But that coin really helped remind me that I am a United States Marine and anybody, it works for anybody in the military because everyone has prestige and there's an entire group of people that came before you to help create that legacy of what that title means that you earned. And that power is with you forever. And we just kind of need to tap into it, not as like an ego, but as a strength of there are so many people rooting for exactly what you're trying to create in the world. Yes, absolutely. So when you, when you transitioned out that your story is you almost kind of started having the triggers of the traditional PTSD story and acting out and having um, or different smells relapse and different things. On the other side of your suicide, how do you handle those situations now that maybe re-trigger a memory or something to happen strong, but not have the same reaction? Uh, My reaction now to triggers or anything that reminds me of the bad times is more or less, um, for instance, if it's, if I'm feeling it in that moment, my wife is usually next to me 90% of the time. I instantly tell her, Hey, I'm feeling some type of way. So when I feel that coming on to where whatever my reaction might be, who's ever around me is aware of what may happen. So I, I more or less just, instead of holding it in, I, I just tell people around me, Hey man, I'm in a, I'm in a bad mood today. So just, just in the mood. Or like I said, I let my wife know that something's making me uncomfortable or I, instead of doing it aggressively or just, I guess, just lashing out and instantly reacting, reacting. I kind of just give myself time to process it and remove myself casually, like calmly, instead of just getting, you know, hypervigilant and not overreacting, but controlling the emotions that used to make me not have control. So that's really, 
it's it's been a hundred percent difference 360 from something seven years ago till today it's just more or less of being not um what's that word um embarrassed of of the issues i deal with every day so that's how i handle it now is just just continually talk about it let people know around me to still be be yourself and everything and don't don't worry about putting me in a situation that might affect me if something bothers me I'll let you know, or I'll remove myself. So that's, that's pretty much the, it's kind of basic, but it really, that's what helps me. So. Do you describe it as feeling like a fire in your chest? The, like the anxiety? Like when it, when you start feeling it build, does it feel like a fire? There was one guy that I had and he wrote a children's book about why daddy is so mad. And he describes yeah. it in there as like, sometimes daddy just has this fire inside his chest that feels like it's going to burn outside of him. Yeah. It's more just, it's an uncomfortable feeling for me. Like I just kind of, for me, it's kind of like I'm uncomfortable with my skin, kind of like want to rip my clothes and rip my skin off type feeling. That's just kind of, it just, it just puts a, it's hard to explain it, but it's literally like I've made the comments when I'm in those moods. Like I wish I could just take my clothes off and sit naked somewhere and not deal. Like it's just, it feels like something, eh, like something dripping out of me. It really is how it kind of feels. It's just, and that, that's, that's still, that's hard to, to overcome. It's just because when that kind of stuff happens to me, 90% of the time I'm at a football game or a race or something where there's thousands of people around. So I can't really just, just scream. <laughs> so I kind of got to relax. But, but yeah, it's just, it's just very uncomfortable feeling that comes over me. Do, but you, I can ever, tell. <laughs> do you ever find um, that it's hard to, or that you get stuck in a loop of thoughts of, um, beating yourself up that you could have done more like that um it was somehow your fault type thoughts is that kind of is that something that's permanent a lot or no now with like you talk about like what with the suicide now yeah we're on either side of it like yeah, you still I mean, beat yourself up that somehow por- some small portion your subconscious still thinks it was your fault yeah like, is that thought that still you yeah, there's, there's things i still go through where like i i feel like i don't like putting my wife through this kind of stuff or my family and my friends. And I still, that was my biggest issue to really get on the full road of recovery was to try to just deescalate those thoughts. Cause I, and I still deal with it where I feel that it is my fault. And you know, if, if my, if somebody has a certain reaction toward, toward me or I explode for some reason, I mean, I still, I still beat myself up. I, I don't think that, that will ever fully go away. You just have to learn to not let those thoughts control your mind a hundred percent and try to just beat them up every day. Cause that, that really was. And when we get into that, as far as my recovery, that, I mean, that really was one of the hardest things I had to overcome was to just get that guilt and just, just throw it away the best I can or, or learn to deal with it and turn, turn it into something positive. I've been diving into maybe too much, but um, a lot of Tony Robbins stuff. And it's really um, hit me in ways that I wasn't expecting. And I mean, I don't have anything to compare to you, but there's things that I often hold myself and blame myself for happening. And I mean, they're not tragic, but nevertheless, these are still things that my subconscious still blames me for. And it really hit me when, kind of around this idea that I was taking this coin that, uh, I really had to take this mindset that if order to for the people around me as a dad, as, as having my kids and my wife, in order to truly unconditionally love others, I had to be able to unconditionally love myself first. 
And I, it hit me kind of that, like when I looked in the mirror, I couldn't honestly say the person looking back was someone that I loved because there was so many shades there that I would just rather erase than acknowledge that they're there and they happen and now they're part of me. And it's really been kind of a journey this last month of just being able to subconsciously look in the mirror and love everything that's looking back, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And it's that forgiveness of yourself that it's, it's all happened and there's nothing you can do about it. The only thing you can do is figure out how you can grow flowers from this big pile of shit that is your life in some cases. Absolutely. And having that mindset and just remind yourself you have to unconditionally love yourself before you can freely love others. That's really helped um, free me from some of those guilty thoughts or sometimes if I felt like ice cream was going to be the only thing for a solution, well, that was really me punishing myself for being a whatever at that day or whatever happened. And now as I look through it, I, I don't have that punishment type choice like, oh, you're going to go to McDonald's and get a burger because you're a shithead. Like that thought doesn't circle through my head now that I'm looking through this lens of loving everything that happened, good and bad. That's 100% spot on. Like that's legit. Yes, absolutely. That, that is my thought process exactly. You're 100% on point with that. Absolutely. <laughs> And the other side of that coin is this, I've always gotten, I've heard in so many podcasts, there's so many people talk about masculinity and femininity and man, it's a soup mess that I've always got lost in. But Tony has really helped frame it in a way that I finally was able to understand. And that the feminine is a part that you can feel and Marines often suck at feeling. So this is the part yes. that we don't tap into. And, but then at the same time, we would think that by not feeling we're being masculine, but if that's not the exact case. If anything, we're, we're hiding in the middle between feminine and masculine. Because if you're truly masculine, you're letting the emotion flow through you, but not waver in its, in its um, attempt to move you. That it does flow, you do feel it, but at the same time, it doesn't waver your determination to love your wife. That, like, um, he describes it like, uh, there's certain things that, or relationships that he's worked with that he's recovered and made better. And some of it is the only thing he does to the husband is just say, whatever she gives you, you love her more. Like if she throws more at you, that just means you bring more to the table and show how much you love her because she's testing you. And this is the same kind of stuff when you, I've really fell in love with this idea of masculinity as a strength of letting stuff flow around you, but not letting it carry away. Like the coin in my hand to anchor in the river. Like if I'm standing still in the middle of a storm and being an oak tree is another example and having roots so deep that it doesn't affect me. My, my leaves may be gone, but the, the tree is still there and I can always regrow. Like that's kind of the, the ed, double-edged sword that I wasn't actually able to frame in my head and really kind of got me stuck on being able to even figure out who I really was. Like I feel more alive in the last two months just from understanding of how to switch from a masculine energy to a feminine and it allows everything to flow through. And I think that's often where the PTSD a mindset can get messed up because it's something you think you can treat and that's how people label it as, but it's really not something you treat. You just learn to, to be with it yes, and, and let it flow around you and not let it control your life. And you let it something that you can talk about without ever even flinching almost like, yeah. um, I'm sure you'll probably get this way and you maybe already are, but as you start sharing your story, like you'll get people that are just awestruck at the yes. vulnerability that you share. And eventually you'd be like, I don't even consider this, I consider this level one. I don't even consider this a real deal anymore because I've shared it so much. And I find the same thing that I'll share a story. some like my uh, friendship story that I didn't have a lot of friends growing up. 
And I think it's a pretty level one story, but I've made people cry with that story. Yeah. So it's, it's all about being able to own both sides of that uh, feeling, but at the same time being a person of strength to let whatever you're feeling flow around you. Yeah, you you remove the emotion attached to the PTSD that you felt. Initially. You remove the meaning that's yeah. attached to that emotion. Yeah. Like yeah, that exactly. doesn't mean that you're a bag of ass. That just means that that, that happened. Yeah, and that's, that's actually something they, this guy named Bruce Eads, my therapist that I had from 2013 till last year, he retired. And that's, he, he was the driving force in any emotion I had, whether it was survivor's guilt for my friends or survivor's guilt of the suicide attempt for putting my wife and my family through that. And once I pretty much removed the, the negative thoughts and all that, it changed my aspect and thought process on having PTSD or even what I went through with the suicide and put my family through it. It really changed. And once I could not convince myself, but just years and years of thinking that way, it finally the emotions in it and I can share my story and not feel there's no shame when I talk about anything anymore. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it's like, you just, you just alluded to, you just, just, it's part of you and it, it's, it is what it is. And, it's going to be with you the rest of your life. And you just, you got to choose to, to win. That's I always like the explanation that PTSD is post-traumatic growth disorder, that you just grew up exponentially and experienced 60 years of life in 10 minutes in many cases. Yeah. And that just makes you very uneasy and you have to figure out how to, to, to handle that and figure out how to handle that growth. Um, but I've had a lot of dads say that this explanation helps as well, that, a lot of whatever happens to you in the military is just part is just another wrench in a thousand piece snap on toolbox. And there will come a day that that wrench will have a purpose and you will look back on whatever that wrench created that wrench and say, I wouldn't have it any other way. And it's hard to see that when it's happening or even when you're at this stage or wherever stage you're at on your transition, but you have to have faith that everything that's happened to you will essentially happen for you. And you'll have a moment you're like, I wouldn't have had it any other way if I didn't have that part of my story. Absolutely. I don't regret anything I've been through to this day. Not even the, the, suicide, the suicide attempt was the, the, re, the reset button of my life. Really if anything, it just brought you down to the bottom to the point where it almost like a springboard and you're now moving faster and better than you ever did before. Absolutely. 100%. And it, I've also heard that... Um, in your case, you hit rock bottom and almost passed through the bottom and eight feet under. Uh, but in this case, it was almost like you, you kind of realized, well, I was at the floor and I was still able to come back and now I can actually start creating something because so much of the emotion that you feel can just be overwhelming that it's going to be the end of the world. But you can cut yourself open at any moment and you can't find a single emotion. Yep. But it, yet it feels so real, which is why you, you have to treat it as a mind game because that's what it is. Yes. and you have to remember that you're not defined by what you feel and you just got to let it go through. Yes, absolutely. And we were talking about being a dad and one of the biggest things that I always um, give dads that lost someone overseas is this idea that there's, and if any of your friends that lost someone overseas, the same thing would apply if they had kids that there is a child out there that no longer gets to feel their father's love and their father no longer gets to feel their father or their child's love, which is like one of the most purest loves that any person can feel. And if they died, they gave you a gift to go home and feel your child's love. 
And I often challenge military dads that it's up to us to create a legacy and a life worthy of that sacrifice that they gave us, that every day we get to hug our kids. We need to remember the people that don't get to do that. And I often measure my life now against that sacrifice. And am I creating a legacy strong enough to measure up to that gift that multiple brothers and sisters have given us so that we can be able to hug our kids and feel that love and to keep doing it. And if we come home and just be a couch dad, that does nothing to honor the child out there that no longer gets to feel their father's love. That's even an analogy for me. That was part of me getting over the ignorance and, um, the depression and the embarrassment of my suicide attempt, I actually had to use that. Like my guy, the guys that got killed are Matthew Wyatt and Ben Lee. And I'm like, would they really want me living my life like this? I mean, they, they don't have an opportunity at nothing. They lost that in 2004. And yeah, it's I up have, to you to live two more lives on top of what you're living. Yeah. You live, live in their honor and experience what they could, they could have experienced, but they, they've missed out on it. Quit living like a piece of shit. Like seriously, and you have to use that motivation. It's like, because once you just constantly think of that, it's like you might as well, like, really just just switch places with them because you don't deserve it. And that's what you have to. That's how I looked at it. Like, quit. It sucks what we went through, but live honorably. Don't live. Don't carry their name on in vain in life. You know what I mean? Carry it with honor and Mm -hmm. beating yourself up because you can't control what happened. That happened. It, It is what it is. There's nothing. Nothing in this world you could ever do to change any of that. And that really, it's the same analogy, whether you just have to lit like honorably and not in vain. And that was, that, that was, that's one of the biggest today. What, what we're doing tonight is it's in their name and their honor is to just to live on and happily. And I think this is the part when I interviewed so many dads that, um, I get excited about igniting the fire inside our chest to be a great human being and a dad because the military is less than 1% of the population in the United States, but we have a worldview and adapt to the world that nobody even comes close to, that we understand a, a, a way of working with people that we don't like. We have a way of working with cultures that we don't understand because the military is a giant melting pot. And we have such an amazing opportunity to create such amazing human beings as a family and a dad that like when you just don't recognize and honor what it is that you are as a dad and the gift that other dads have given you by not coming home, you're leaving so much potential to help impact the world in a positive way that it's, that's part of every time I talk to someone, I'm always trying to help them ignite the reason why they exist as a military dad and the potential that they can leave on the table by just sitting there on the couch. Yes, absolutely. When you think about the the journey on the other side of the suicide, what were some of the key things that helped you kind of wake up to from that fog that you were standing in? Post suicide, um, I just really just it took a year, so I didn't come out of that dark spot of pre suicide and post suicide till about March of 2014, so almost almost a full calendar year later. Um, so I'm a, I'm a big race fan and I can honestly say what was one of the wake up calls and it, it might sound strange, but it just hit me. So I'm a big, big NASCAR fan. And, um, I was watching, I was sitting at home one day by myself. We actually had an ice storm. So we had in and out of power 
I was watching a race in Bristol, Tennessee, and they were delayed for the same storm we're having here in North Carolina. And uh, Kurt Busch at the time was doing a lot with the Armed Forces Foundation. And he had a piece of a uniform of a soldier that got killed overseas in his fire suit. And during a rain delay, he just talked about it and he was advocating for PTSD. And it just, he's the first athlete of on that level that I heard. And it was just, it's just weird because I was sitting on that couch and it just, it just hit me. And I would say in that year of being forced through the VA and, and really I felt forced of going to counseling and all that kind of stuff and not accepting that PTSD. I was doing all that just because I had to, you know what I mean? Like that's what everybody wants me to do. Not that I wanted to do it because I was still complete, completely ignorant and not accepting that. I didn't want that label of PTSD. So to come out of the fall, like I said, when I, when he did that, it was just a light. Like I just said, the hell with this. Like, this is you, man. It was the same thing we talked about a few minutes ago, looking in the mirror. Because every time I looked in the mirror, I hated myself for it. Hated myself every single day. And it's kind of like, look at what you've done to everybody around you. Like you should have, the world would be better if you're gone. Like I, that's how I was beating myself up even post-suicide. And so that day when he did that, I just, I got on Twitter during that rain delay. I said, hey man, this not anything in the world like thinking he'd even reply on Twitter. And I said, thank you for advocating for veterans. I was like, it just, it just caught me. It wasn't two minutes later. I had a notification back and said, it's like, I forget exactly, but it was, thank you for your service, man. We're all here with you. And I was just, that was just one of those, like, stop being this way. Like you got to change it. So I just decided, I told my buddies and I told my wife, I said, Hey, I want to do a video on YouTube and we'll set my camera up and I'm going to share my testimony. And that's, that really, and still I, I wanted to, because I, I just had that, it was almost that uncontrollable force, but like I wasn't in control anymore. Like I felt the man above was taken over and there was nothing I could do. I'm just along for the ride at this point. Mm-hmm. And I did that video and man, it's, <laughs> it was, it's unbelievable what just the, the, the stop feeling sorry for yourself mentality. And once that, once I accepted, not maybe got over it, but just accepted what happened, my outlook started changing. So yeah, it just took a simple something I seen on TV to pull me out even 10 months after the suicide attempt. So. And what you're talking about there is the other crappy part to Marines, mostly because vulnerability is like the kryptonite from the way we're programmed. And if you actually show a raw emotion or show that you aren't this stoic Marine with a uniform or squared away uh, sleeve and all the things that go with being a ego driven centric uh, Marine, that vulnerability is the one thing that gives you permission to feel. Yeah. And I often say, especially with these podcast episodes is the goal is always just to say something vulnerable and you've got a really vulnerable story, but sometimes it doesn't even have to be that crazy. It wasn't even that crazy for you to, to wake up, to come home. Yeah. And there, and I, I describe what you, I like what you said about in your head that there's these thoughts because I like to describe it almost like an echo chamber that these thoughts just keep getting louder and louder and louder until the point where you can't actually hear anybody around you. You can hear them, but you don't actually hear them because the voice is so loud and it comes to one conclusion that your life would be better without you. And all it takes is one voice, one voice to wake up and say, that guy's having the same problem as me and my brain's telling me that I'm the only one like this. I wonder what else I might have wrong. 
Yeah. And that almost instantly, it's like noise canceling headphones. It just starts introducing a, an audio wave that cancels out the waves in your head. And by doing that, when you go, when you become saying something vulnerable, you're going first. And the magic part is that most people get wrong. Instead of showing weakness, it shows strength. And you actually give thousands of people at the same time permission to go second. Yeah. You give them permission to feel what they haven't been feeling. Or like your video, I'm sure a lot of veterans suck at labeling their emotions. I'm sure this is something you did in therapy, like give it a name. What exactly are you feeling? And you give it words for a feeling that they don't know how to describe, which then almost instantly overwhelms them because their brain starts processing what they feel now because it has some inputs to judge it by. And like the almost like if, it, if the river of emotion is dammed, the dam blows up and it starts flowing again after some simple story. And you on stage telling your story, I mean, that's the best gift you can give someone is permission to go second. Absolutely. You said that, that vulnerability and like nail on the head. Once you, once you open that up and you're, you're kind of like, I, there was skepticism with sharing my story because I worried about what people's opinions are. But like you said, one of the people's opinions are like, man, this, this is unbelievable. Like this is more brave than going to a combat zone. You know what I mean? Like that's, and that's like, well, hell I hadn't, <laughs> I didn't think of it like that, but, but yeah, thanks. And then once you, when, like you said, when that opens up, that that mentality and stigma that you had on it just it just gets thrown away almost almost instantly. Mm-hmm. And like I said, you just just build on it and keep on going. And I mean, I, I love doing this now. I mean, it's it's I absolutely love it. I'm, I will not ever tell nobody no of sharing my story, 100% detail, everything, good, mm-hmm. the bad. And good. once you get the exercise, the muscle exercise enough. I mean, the sky's the limit because you just start telling, and that's usually something that people always tell me, like they're, they're always kind of just blown away of how transparent I am with how I feel. Sometimes I'm be too honestly, but I honestly don't even really have a filter anymore. I'm, it's just me. It's my default state now. And that creates stronger friendships because I have less to hide. And um, you've, you've mentioned ego a lot. And I, I honestly, even if you don't have PTSD, that's the one switch that most veterans don't turn off when they transition. Even if you had a perfect experience, and that's the one thing that'll keep you from coming home is having your ego on because I like to describe the ego and I've used it as kind of like a detective mechanism that wherever your ego is the strongest. And in your case, it proved true as well, that that's really where you need to go do the most work because it's like, it's a, in your mind consciously, there's an area. If you think of a, a light shining down in a circle, your ego is where it's dark in that circle. You still keep it in the shadows. And you're constantly rotating your personality every day to make sure no one sees that shadow. So you overly inflate something to make sure that someone doesn't notice what's really over here. And that takes a lot of mental energy. And the moment you bring that into the light, it just instantly vanishes. And the ego it's can gone. Kill you. Yeah, the ego can kill you. I mean, and, and once you just let it go, you like you, you'll, you'll, free, so you'll feel free. And it... I mean, there's a reason why even meditation, they use light as a mechanism to heal yourself because it does have um, a healing mechanism. I remember I started the Miracle Morning like five years ago now, and it started with just going for a walk in the morning. And I realized something as it was, it was a summer and it was nice out, the sun would be rising and it would hit me and I would just instantly feel like Superman almost. Like I would get so much strength from just feeling that, that sunlight hit my skin. And I use that kind of like, like light can be healing if you use it in this metaphor, but you have to bring out of the shadows, whatever it is that you've got hidden there. 100%. Absolutely. So if you were to write 
a sticky note on a piece of paper. And let's, I'm trying to take the better point to, to send it to yourself. Let's say you got out in 2007, it's 2010. So in the midst of your storms, you really haven't hit rock bottom, but you're in the midst of tearing down your house, essentially. What piece of advice would you write on a sticky nose piece of paper if you could leave it for yourself to find? Um, to, <laughs> I'm trying to think here. Uh, really, don't be scared. Like, I mean, I think fear was my biggest, fear was my biggest enemy of, of, of acceptance. So yeah, just be fearless. Just don't, don't have fear. I mean, that's really and it's crazy because in the Marine Corps, fear is almost taking action without the worry of the consequences. Almost, yeah. Um, but at the same time, the on the other side, is the civilian side, it's it's a it flips because you really when you're when you're fearless in the Marines, you like you said, it's just it's just acting. But like when you're civilian side of it, and you have fear because you're you're worried about it's just. The outcome could be different. You can't control it. And it's just fear fear is it flips. So yeah, I, I would say just just be fearless. Like let go of the fear. It's mm-hmm. just, and that fear that's what, is, that's what messed um, me up with being scared. I've used a couple different things. So not in this context, but like fear is something as in twenty twenty, it's only gotten worse. I would say that um I've kind of described a little bit like if you think of when Japan bombed Pearl Harbor that that awoken the sleeping giant of America to kick their ass and Europe's in the same way that Americans are almost fearful of being judged by Facebook and people on their Instagram following that there's this massive bottleneck of fear in people's lives from actually living their life that they want versus the default plan that target gives you on every weekend. You need to go there and do your target run. But if you were to unlock that fear, I can't help but think that America would be a sleeping giant of 3,000 times more action and strength and even just inspiration for the world if we truly woke up as Americans and walked through the fear. As military, civilians, doesn't matter. And that fear can be just so paralyzing if you don't have something traumatic you're running from. And I actually measure a lot of what I do in my life now by if something scares me, I really look at it hard. And the more something scares me, that generally means on the other side is something beautiful and amazing. Just like for you, like you think of on the other side of you posting a YouTube video, you've got an entire flower bed of daffodils in this big pile of shit that grew. Yeah. And that was something amazing that grew from that fear. And that's really where you just got to, I just keep chasing my fear and running through it. Um, I have some things called cloyism, which is kind of my weird way to put stuff. And one of my very first ones, was if you're at the wall of fear, find the door and walk through it because your destiny could be on the other side. And you don't know if that story will somehow create a destiny that you don't even know is out there, but that door could have opened. And now, I mean, you're now on this interview because of one story and it's just this chain events that you don't have control over, but it's your story just kind of playing out in the real world without fear. When I was, when I did that video initially, as far as the fear factor, before I, I got my buddy that I work on the race team with, before we, I turned my camera on and sat down, I was puking, <laughs> pooping. Like, my stomach was tore up. So, like, you're talking, like, anything that, like, triggers me. I'm talking dry, heaving pukes, like, terrified. And it's just me and him in a garage in a video camera. There's no – I didn't even have to post it. And that that fear was just – it was a nightmare. Then, like, I, I reluctantly put it on YouTube and shared it on Facebook. I'm like, oh, boy, like – here we go. It's gonna be really bad. Like this is this is gonna be bad. And the, even 
even beyond post doing that video, I still would have fear of getting being in front of the general public, getting on a stage or something like that. Getting up to that moment is a nightmare. But once I'm in the moment, like it's just you're almost weightless up there. Like it's just it's a it's really it's kind of out of body. You know what's scary? I had I did uh, my Veterans Day, my daughter's Veteran Day program. Try talking to kindergartners and third up to third graders about Veterans Day. I felt like I was going to explode leading up to it. Like I was my, and it was five minutes. I mean, it was the simplest thing I ever did. But man, I was like, I volunteered for it. I put my name into it. I talked to the principal. I was like, (laughs) hey, what about talking? And then I'm just taught leading up to like, what the f did I do to get myself into this? And I talked for five minutes about how veterans sit on the buddy bench which is something in the playground and that a lot of fr- veterans just need a friend and i would consider it a very simple message that kids could understand and i turned around and i got the music teacher crying i mean i only talked for like five minutes and i didn't really share anything like game changer yeah. but i already and i had someone crying from a simple story so like going back from like the power of vulnerability like talking about how a veteran really feels and what we really need broke brought someone to tears and that was just a simple thing in front of a kindergarten or an elementary school. It's hard. I, I actually spoke in front of a, an eighth grade class up, up near Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, my sister-in-law's class. Um, it was back in May and I've, I've spoken in front of big groups before. That was one of the most intimidating things was going in, in front of an eighth grade class. Cause it's just like, man, they're 14 year old kids. They don't give a crap. And that it was more or less like, kind of just going up here I don't know what they're going to retain but like just the questions they're asking because we had about 30 minutes and the questions those kids were asking was just I was getting better questions from 14 year old kids than I was from grown grown adults that I've spoken to it it was it was wild but yeah eighth grade's a tipping point it's when you go from top of the world to bottom of the world your your social status is kind of cemented you're either in the point where you're going to go downward trajectory and be a loser for the next four years and then hate yourself so I can imagine you probably saved a lot of kids because if this guy felt what I was feeling just now as a 14 year old, you've given some permission, someone permission to cancel out that thought at a very critical age. I think 14, I would think is a very critical age where you either fall into identity crisis and start having suicidal thoughts as a teenager, or you accelerate into something that most teenagers are today. But there's a lot of teenagers that fall in that crack that my life isn't worth living, especially today. Like so much externally of our life is validated from Facebook and Instagram versus the the internal value that you have everything inside you need already. You don't need to go externally. And that's what my sister-in-law asked me. They actually wrote me letters. And I said, hey, instead of trying to write back 50 kids, I'm coming up in May. I'll come and talk to them. She's like, are you for real? And then we got more in depth. And this we said where she's had students come and talk to her about suicide and stuff. And, you know, I graduated no two and I didn't have, I didn't know a single person that committed suicide or at least attempted it to my knowledge. And I don't know if anything's changed in the 19, well, 17 years since then, but like she said, they have a lot of kids dealing with the, the, the suicide stuff and, and the depression. And I said, well, do you want me? Like, is this what I'm talking to these kids about? She said, absolutely. She's like, it's not, it's nothing they can't handle because their 14 year old lives are so much more complex than we really understand. My daughter's seven and she has a 16 year old life. Yeah. Like, so yeah, I went in there and like the, the question they would ask kids coming up to me that they didn't want to ask in front of their peers about stuff like that. So it was, I was like, it just kind of blew me away that like the story that we have with PTSD and, and suicide and stuff like that, that when we're helping a generation, you know, 
the kids that are 20 years younger than us that are going through that the depression side of it now. So it was just, it was awesome. That was actually one of my more favorite um, opportunities was to speak to a younger generation because they, like I said, it, they're like, like you said, they're so much more glued to it and asking those in-depth questions because it's, it's hitting them a hundred percent. So yeah, nothing's flying place. over that, that their yeah. message. Uh, and the, I think there's another part that you're probably at this stage now with the probably working through all these feelings is when you start finding purpose in it and being able to use it for good, even though it's something terrible, when you reach that something purpose stage, I think that's when you really start to truly forgive yourself because now something's good coming from it. Like even the episode I was telling you about this uh, before we hit record for with Sarah Roberts, like that was a hard episode and I struggled even maybe to, to publish it because it made him look really bad and because he did kill himself um, and left his daughter. But at the same time, that story has helped many other dads come home. So it's finding purpose through his story. And now his episode is kind of a memorial on my podcast for helping him, his story that he couldn't get through life. So that story now helps other people wake up who still haven't come home or can come home. And you can start finding purpose in even the worst tragedies. That's for sure. Motivation for sure. And I'm sure the same thing, like if you, if you were to dig into nine 11 survivors, I mean, as, as those kids lost many of their parents, I'm sure you could find stories where they've taken that tragedy and that pain, that scar in their heart, and they've done beautiful things in the world since then. And they probably would cite an entirely new trajectory of their life without their parents because of that. So when let's maybe dive into a little bit with your wife. So your wife is a rock, I would say for going through all this. And, um, Sarah Roberts gifted me something that, uh, for any veteran out there thinking to take their own life, that really what happens is you think that you're ending the pain, but really all you do is just pass it on. Passing it on. Passing it on. And it never actually ends. It's just you continue it to pass on a feeling of broken unworthiness. Like, was I not good enough? Was I not loved enough to try to keep him here? Like, and if you have kids, these are thoughts that your kids will never let go. That your kids will always have these questions. So you really just pass it on. What did, is there any perspective or anything you've learned that you want to share from like maybe something um, that you've learned about your wife had to go through, through all of this that would help other dads out there get through it as well? Um, the wife understands a lot more than I think <laughs> or thought she understood. Um, she, from the start, we've been married since 05. So she was, she's been with me since, you know, halfway through the, the Marine Corps, my career there. And we've been together since, um, honestly, just she knows, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know any other way to, she was beforehand. She was pushing me to get help and to speak because she knew I was having issues and I chose to use anger and really just try to put her down to leave me alone so I could just be miserable in my own head mm -hmm. and, and, and not actually open up to letting her know that, yeah, you're right. Um, so I would just say, just, just be good to them. I mean, that's, I mean, I honestly, this, I think of anybody that true, truly cares in a, a, a decently normal, healthy relationship, the wife is, the, she's the most important thing in your life. I mean, for me, because I don't have kids, but 
she's the most important person in my life. And I just, I, I do just, just respect her opinions. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've learned to appreciate her more. Well, I've always, I, I took it for granted beforehand. I mean, that that's, that's yeah. my biggest thing. So. And I think I mean, this happens in the military and it's, it's a noble sacrifice. It's often overwhelming because there's lots of things. There's time away. So it's just easy to say I'm serving. And then it sounded a little bit like maybe you kept that switch on a little bit. Um, Cause I've, one of the bigger takeaways out of the podcast that I've learned as well, that we don't reprioritize our life with our wife as our number one priority. And if you have kids, a lot of people prioritize their kids, but then their kids leave and then their wife's a stranger and then they get divorced because they don't really know each other anymore. But you really need to remember, and that's what sounds like maybe your path you're on now is that your contract with your wife and the marriage, the covenant that you created, it literally goes to the end. And if you don't have that perspective and priority that even if you don't agree with what's going on or what she's saying, this is something you committed to go all the way to the end with. So there isn't something you can just ignore for 50 years and hope it goes away. That these are things, whatever it may be, that you need to face head on together. And um, you'll like this analogy because you were talking about having back problems with the VA. Uh, that I often say that in the Marine Corps, if you couldn't lift something, that really just meant you didn't have enough Marines trying. That it wasn't that you need a fork truck. That was, oh, you just need another 10 Marines, 10 other 10 bodies. And I've really brought that into life as well, that you're not meant to lift everything that life carries you or gives you. And you need to share the load. And if you have something on your heart that's too heavy, it just means you need other people around you to help lift it. And that's what your wife was trying to do. You were just trying to be so stubborn that, I've got the muscles to be able to lift this, but life gives you ultimately more than you can handle. And for a hundred thousand years, men survived with, in tribes that we did life. We hunted, we supported each other with what we needed. And it's only the last 100 that we thought we could do it alone. But that mindset of doing it alone is not how men are wired to live life. Yeah. She, she never gave up on me. I mean, not, if she could have left me at any point, she could have left me the day that I woke up in the hospital out of that coma. You know what I mean? And that was really literally never, ever, ever gave up. And I did everything I could prior to the suicide to destroy our marriage. Cause I just figured if I'm going to be miserable, cause I was a miserable ass. I mean, there's no other way around it. I mean, I was just everything I could do to try to make myself be by myself. She would not, she wouldn't take no for an answer because her stubbornness in a good way, save my ass. So, and so, I mean, she, yeah, I got to, I got to respect that woman. And I've, I had to learn to, I had to learn to just understand her and, and treat her right. And just, and listen and not burden it all by myself and, and carry it by myself and let, mm-hmm. let, let people around me, you know, take their, their percentage of that weight. Yeah. And your and your and marriage isn't designed to carry everything either. Like that's why you need other people around you. That's why you need men in your life to help support you because your marriage can do a lot of things, but there's certain things that your marriage isn't meant to carry. And your wife shouldn't have to carry all the things that are struggling you. That's why you have other men to open up to. And just because you're feeling something doesn't always mean it's your wife's job to help and make you feel better. Yeah. It's that it's that ego <laughs> that it comes back again. Yeah. And it's always, uh, it's always a battle. And, but once you bring awareness to it and then acknowledge that at least you can deal with it, that's how you ultimately can 
can move through it and keep consciously improving your life day by day. Correct. Well, Bobby, I am 300% sure that we brought dads home and any non-dad listeners, I'm sure they will as well, have had some type of impact from this story that wakes them up to realize that just coming home physically isn't enough, that there's an entire life waiting for you if you come home mentally and realize what's around you. So I want to thank you and honor you for your story and your vulnerability and answering a random guy's message on uh, Facebook about asking you to come on the podcast. Yeah. That's, that's the whole point, though. When I, when I seen that, I, I, I didn't know that it was directly from the story. And like I said, I just, I'd be ignorant not to um, survive a, a hanging in my backyard, being in a coma. My wife is the one that performed CPR, saved my butt, and to not take on PTSD full on and, and, and share it and know that in your that dark place, it's not, it's not over. And a, a quick story and, and you talk about the, the passing on, I want to share that real quick in the, in there. When I did that video on YouTube, um, I met a Marine. Well, uh, first off, this woman on YouTube messaged me and said, Hey, I caught my husband. He has kids with a pistol in his hand, but the gun jammed. She's like, and I, I want him to watch your video. And I said, okay, well, I go to the Salisbury VA and this is who I see. I see a guy named Bruce. He saved my butt. It's the best thing I can do. And so New Year's Eve of 2015, after I did that video, Bruce was walking the gentleman out of the, his office and the guy looked at me like he was going to kill me or he knew me. <laughs> it was the husband of that woman that messaged me on YouTube. And he sat there and we both cried. And Bruce had no idea that we knew each other. And we, he's like, I saw your video on YouTube and you're the reason I'm here. And so if it doesn't, if you don't think that what we do right here makes an impact, but that single handedly was like, it was, it was just, it was unbelievable to, to know that you make an impact. And he was a Marine. Mm-hmm. He got out. You he changed was, the family tree forever. And yes. that tree keep growing. I mean, somebody has their father. And, it, and that was something I wanted to share, especially with, with your podcast of, you know, military dad, because he, he is, and these kids almost lost their father. And now he is same thing. I see we're friends and we keep up and the stuff I've seen him do, he's out advocating, sharing his story, passing along. And it's just, and like I said, that this is amazing. Again, a, a, a whole family has their dad just because of me being vulnerable and not caring of what people's opinions are anymore and just, and opening them up. So it's, like I said, I have a second chance and I'd be a fool not to change it for the good and run with it and embrace it because this is me. And if you want to watch that YouTube listeners, I will include the link for it in the show notes that you can click down there and check it out. And if I could add one extra thing to the, your story that made me remember something, the one thing that if, you, if you're listening to this, maybe struggling to try to figure out how to be purposeful with what's going on, how to be really anything with your story, the best thing that I figured out through all of this podcast is the one thing that will move and change a veteran's life is friendships. That there are veterans that are extremely lonely. They may be surrounded with people that love them, but inside they're just as lonely as a person in the middle of the ocean in a dinghy. And the best way to bring them home is through friendships and just be the friend you wish you had at any point in your life. And that's all you really need to do to make any impact. And just you being a friend in that moment with that dad and the, and the woman, like all you really need to do, the simplest step is just be a friend. And I'm convinced that friendships are the key to help 
fix that 22 number that you just need to keep being the friend that you wish you were and, or you wish you had. And that's what I say in the podcast is I wish I'm the friend for other veterans that I wish I had five years ago in my life. Cause that would have shortcutted a thousand times in my life of where I am today. And that's the one big thing that monumentally made me come home was I started connecting with people and like-minded men and started creating friendships that canceled out this feeling that I was alone. And then I've created this whole podcast and this idea of being able to help others and be the friend that I wish I had five years ago to help save me. 100%. Yeah. Um, me sharing my story and it's for us Marines really. And I want to say just Marines, but I use that. So after I share my story of all the backlash that I thought maybe I would have gotten from guys I served with out of every Marine, my best friends that we never up until really 2014, when I shared my story, even as us being brothers and sharing the same experiences of getting blown up and being in Iraq with them, we never really talked about it. But every single one of them that I served with, it has opened up. I mean, Facebook messages saying, hey, man, I'll have the balls to talk about it like you do, but thank you so much. I mean, there is not one that I've not served with that hasn't been like, dude, I'm not going to get on a, on a stage and talk about it, but I'll talk to you about it. But man, we're all going, literally the wives, they're all going through the same stuff. And like when they hear it, I'm, it's, I'm the voice for, I'll say in my unit, you know, a hundred Marines, I'm a voice for, you know, 100 of them. And they're not all talking about it. And every single one is like, now we get together now, it's, it, I've changed my relationship with them post suicide because we talk about it because, you know, we just stuff everything down. So it is, that is another thing to where I hear them when they say, Hey man, thanks for doing what you're doing. That, that drives me too, because at the end of the day, when it comes to my, my brothers in arms opinions, that is one opinion that really does have a, besides my wife and family, but that's an opinion that I a hundred percent value. And like I said, the, to be a voice for them because they, they're not where I'm at and I don't want them to be in a dark place but they don't have to be that lighthouse for people to find. Yes. But I want them to be able to confide in me and I can share their story for them. You know what I mean? And that's, and that's just, like I said, man, just, it's changed my friendship with my brothers that we, we left, we left, when we left Iraq in March of 05, we left it there. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And we, we, we changed that. And I, I, I love it. I mean, it's just, it's so nice to hear it from my best friends that we, we stuffed so much down for, over a decade. So it's, 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 that's, like I said, that's, that's the motivation. Sure. I recorded a 20 minute episode on emotions in November and I had a, uh, a Vietnam vet email me. It was like a five paragraph email. So it was pretty intense email. And he's like, I wish someone would have told me how to process emotion like you did in that episode 30 years ago. Cause I would have completely changed how I live my life. And that was a 20 minute episode on emotions. Yes. And I, I continue to take those and just know that this work is so needed and people resonate when they hear it. The hardest part of this podcast is really the people that need it aren't looking for it. So it's an uphill battle. But every time I make a dent or a little bit of a crack, I just try to keep diving deeper into that. And my goal with the podcast isn't to change the world. It's just to change the world for one person at a time. And that's where it really starts. And that's how we start changing that 22 number. hundred percent. Like I said, I got... Eric that I met in the VA, my buddies I served with, and hopefully someone listen to this here in the next couple of days. That's, that's, that's the goal. And like you said, that's, that's all you need. Just it's when you get one, it's a domino effect. 
because they'll, they'll change somebody else's life. You pass it along, pass it, pass it forward. And then eventually the momentum can help but carry on its own. Correct. Well, Bobby, you enjoy the rest of your night. I'm, I'm positive this is the beginning of a great friendship that is awesome. just getting started. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Awesome. Thank you for having me. That's a wrap. And thank you for listening to today's show. And I really hope you enjoyed it. The lifeblood of any new podcast are the reviews. If you haven't reviewed the podcast yet on iTunes, I would really appreciate it. And you will help us get the message out to even more military veteran dads. As John Maxwell says, if there is hope in the future, there is power in the present. Dads, it's time to come home.